lift, they needed to raise a fuck ton of money because they were in a in this blitz scaling battle against Uber. But like nobody was ever saying, oh boy, I wonder if the market for ride sharing is going to be big. Everybody's like, it's going to be fucking huge. We need like a rocket ship that gets off the launch pad and escapes the gravitational pull of the earth. So I'm like, and if that's what you're in it for, I'm your guy, right? But like, don't buy my rocket fuel if you want to just go slightly faster in the car that you're driving because your car will blow up, right? It'll just be like, it's not the right financing vehicle. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Mr. USA, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk with one of my favorite venture capitalists, Mike Maples. He also has an awesome podcast called Starting Greatness. I highly recommend it. Go listen to the Chegg episode. He's also invested in companies like Lyft, Twitch, and Twitter. If you've ever wanted to learn how to scale your business to seven figures and beyond, you'll love this episode. In this conversation, enjoy three major things. Number one, when to go from scrappy mode to scale. Number two, why you should hire for execution, not vision. Number three, why most companies shouldn't look for venture capital. Plus, he talks about rocket fuel, which is hella funny. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you're subscribed to AppSumo.com, the number one marketplace for entrepreneurs, AppSumo.com. Also, if you like me, because I like you, dog, go to YouTube.com slash OKDork and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Victorian92. They left review saying, what a personable guy. Just started listening to this, and even though I'm not the intended audience, the podcast was insightful. Noah sounds like a super cool dude. That's a flattering thing. Thank you for the opinion and every other one of you guys. I love you. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review anywhere you listen to the show and I check every single one of them. How are you? I'm doing great. What have you been up to these days? I haven't seen you in forever. Are you in Austin or are you biking across America right now? Oh, that's right. I saw that on Twitter. That's impressive. What made you to do that? I was reading a book, uh, Donald Miller, Thousand Miles and a Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Oh, wow. And I was just like, man, that sounds like an adventure that uh, I feel very blessed that I have the ability to do that right now. So I just felt called to go do it. Nice. And um, I guess we traded some emails on uh, how I could better promote my podcast. And I was like, oh, man, I can't I can't not take advantage of that opportunity because <laughs> you're kind of a guru at this kind of stuff. But before, uh, before we jump into that, I just how's life? You know, what, yeah. what are you excited about these days? Yeah, man. It's funny. I, I talked to someone years ago with someone I haven't seen in 10 years. I don't I don't think I've talked to you in person in probably 10 it's years or so. Freaking forever. Yeah. And I asked them, they're like, no, not much. I was like, not much in 10 years. How's, you know, I'm, How's I was that possible? Yeah. Yeah. A lot's been going on. So yeah, I'm doing the Biking America thing. I still mostly live in Austin, but uh, probably splitting my time out. Austin, LA. That's where I'm, I'm in Venice Beach right now. Oh, nice. Okay. Kind of taking a, a butt break on the bike ride. Okay. It's, uh, a little bit sore. But then, uh, and then professionally, I don't know if we pitched you years ago, but we still have AppSumo.com. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's gone on a tear, amazingly. It's the number one marketplace for entrepreneurs. So hundreds of thousands of people starting and growing businesses are buying and selling different software tools on the site. Have you ever raised VC funding for it or have you bootstrapped it? It seemed like it was more of a bootstrap kind of thing. It is. And then somehow, you know, it keeps growing. Good for you. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to answer to a bunch of VCs who kind of change their mind every week about what matters. You know, honestly, well, one, it's, and I, and I say this with, you know, all sincerity, it, it's a lot, it's the team. It's the market yeah. has been amazing in terms of how things have worked out that the internet's going to got more popular. Yeah. More people want to do their own businesses than ever before, but we've, it's hiring the team and the team is like, is, is done really, really well. I wonder sometimes if we would have done better with the VC in terms yeah. of like having this, 
level of accountability and this level of, I wouldn't say adult supervision, but I would say like, you know, experienced people like talk to you and you're like, hey, you know, this is something we're struggling with, which is, hey, those problems have already been solved. And here's the person you should just go hire or talk to. Yeah. Or it's like, okay, I've seen this problem three times and like, here's how I've seen other good companies do it. Like I found as a VC, it's important not to be attached to the advice you give, right? It's more, it's more like you have a database of situations they might not have seen. And so you just say, hey, I'm just going to give you the data you decide. What kind of situations have you seen like that in your experiences? Oh, you mean when, when you've thought about raising VC and things are going well? Not well? about the raising, but just like how companies are operating and how, you know, you've seen, you know, Twitter and Lyft and all these companies scale to these like next level sizes. I guess the benefits of having VC and like where you've been, you know, you think they've actually made it a lot better to be a part of the, the business. Yeah. So I guess there's a few things, Noah, that I've seen, you know, like I think when you're in venture, there's something that I wish every venture capitalist did. And then there's kind of extra credit around your superpowers. Right. And so, so I think like my superpower is probably just like category design and helping, helping founders think about where their product fits in the world. And so like what I find is that startup founders tend to focus on competing by showing why their product's better. My point of departure is you never want to play the comparison game if you can avoid it. And so now with the case of uh, Lyft, we really didn't have much of an option because Uber came after us, copied us with UberX. But, you know, in the early days of Lyft, right, we had a pink mustache. It was totally different. You know, ride sharing was a totally new thing, right? But I'd say that what every VC ought to do is help um, help founders understand sort of where they are in the value creation process. So, So I like to say that a startup you know, creates value differently through time. And so in the early days, they want to have an insight that's not conventional, that's breakthrough, because if they have a, a conventional or mundane insight, it doesn't matter how well they execute, they can never get that big. And then the next step is you want to have zero to one product market fit. And, you know, you kind of a jazz band more than a marching band and you're juking and jiving and you're being MacGyver and James Bond and all that stuff. But then you kind of switch modes into one to X mode. So like the first mistake I see founders make is their insight's just not big enough. It's not good enough. It's not compelling enough. It's not different enough. And then the second mistake is, for whatever reason, they just never find product market fit. You know, they never figure out what can we build uniquely that people are desperate for at scale. And then, and then you kind of shift modes, which is where I've also seen people encounter difficulties. It's kind of this one to X mode. And so you go from conjuring up a new thing and audible at the line of scrimmage to now all of a sudden you got to copy the thing that's working at scale. And so it's one to X more than zero to one. And I like to say it's like uh, value hacking and zero to one is like earth and growth hacking and one to X is like Mars. And it's like on Mars, you got to be like Mark Watney, you got to science the shit out of it. And so the problem that a lot of founders run into is they don't realize when you shift from zero to one to one to X, it's like, it's like if you go out of the Hertz car rental and back up, your tires explode, right? So you're kind of, when you go from value first to growth first mode, you really want to establish the truth of your value because otherwise you're going to have to grow by throwing money at the problem of objections to your lack of value. Whereas yeah. if your value proposition is 100% objectively true, growth becomes about syndicating the truth. And what's the most efficient way for me to do that? What's the most repeatable? What's the most... But like where founders run into trouble is what got them to value hacking and product market fit isn't going to get them to growth hacking and, and predictable growth. They do the next product too soon. They go to the next geography too soon. They do the next whatever it is too soon. 
and they don't shift modes. They don't transition from being MacGyver to VP of nothing. And they don't, they don't go from jazz band to marching band. Cause like when you're in growth first mode, people want sheet music and they want marching bands. They, you know, they want steps to follow. And so, you know, you get this situation where you get a line of people outside the founder's office and they're saying, we used to be focused. Now I can't decide what we're doing. You know, we're all over the place. And, you know, and a lot of these companies that got to zero to one very efficiently, now all of a sudden they just blow through tons of cash and they're not sure why. And like everybody has different opinions about why it's not working and it's really confusing and screwed up. And yeah, so I see that. And then, uh, and then ideally you transition to profit first. And, you know, you have profitable growth. And interestingly enough, you also have profitable decline. And so, you know, you got companies like IBM and CA and, uh, you know, who are using their profits to buy back their own stock. And there's a perverse honesty to that. Yeah. So like, you know, like I like to say that um, what you want to help the founder see is that value creation happens differently through time. And as a venture guy, I want to be the, the founder's best partner in helping them assess value creation. The two pieces that, that you got me kind of thinking about is like, how do you know when to go from like scrappy mode to scale mode? Like, how do you know? And this is kind of a, a tough question on all these, but like, how do you know when you've got to fit? And the other thing I, I was personally curious about is like, what do you know, notice in terms of operations specifically between a, a bootstrap company and a funded company? You know, the way I like to think about it is uh, every company someday, you hope, will be a company that creates profit, right? If Warren Buffett was here right now, he'd say, if I'm Coca-Cola, I create a profit dollar. I have choices about what to do with that profit dollar. I can go buy a wine company and just build an empire just because I want to be big. I can uh, put it back into the business. I can sell Coke in Africa in addition to America. I could sell it in India, China, wherever Coke is not being sold. I can dividend it to the shareholders or I can buy back more stock. And so what Buffett likes to invest in is companies that take their profit dollars and reinvest it in the business. But the market cap expansion of the company is more than the dollar they reinvested back. So he likes to get an increasing return on the profit dollars that they invest. Well, when you think about it, what is a startup really? A startup doesn't generate profit dollars yet. They use VC dollars. And the reason they have permission to do that is the belief is that they're creating this someday massive category that's going to be valuable to own that's going to generate a lot of profit dollars. And so spending money now to own and dominate that future big category is worth it from a value creation perspective, right? The value creation of winning share in the future category as soon as possible is more valuable in the judgment of the VC and the entrepreneur than becoming profitable right away. And there's a trade-off, right? So sometimes a profitable company will raise venture dollars. But I would say even in that case, the valid reason to do it is that growing the pie is rapidly is more important to the entrepreneur than the slice of the pie, relatively speaking, that they own. Is that what you're seeing bootstrap people do? I would normally say the bootstrap person Venture capital is the most expensive money in the world. We're like a loan shark. So like, I'm like, okay, why would you ever want to do business with me? I'm a rocket fuel salesman. And so like, don't buy my rocket fuel unless you want to be a rocket ship, right? Unless you want to achieve escape velocity and get out of the orbit of the present that you're in, because that's what I do. I unapologetically do it, right? Like Lyft, they needed to raise a fuck ton of money because they were in a in this blitz scaling battle against Uber, but like nobody was ever saying, oh boy, I wonder if the market for ride sharing is going to be big. Everybody's like, it's going to be fucking huge. We need like a rocket ship 
that like gets off the launch pad and escapes the gravitational pull of the earth. So I'm like, and if that's what you're in it for, I'm your guy. Right. But like, don't buy my rocket fuel if you want to just go slightly faster in the car that you're driving because your car will blow up. Right. It'll just be like, it's not the right financing vehicle for like what you're trying to do. And so it kind of depends, right? Like if you believe that uh, you're in a category where it's more important to dominate the category because of its growth in the future, then venture capital is justified because it allows you to have the latitude to execute with more flexibility to go capture that opportunity. But if it's kind of like, hey, I'm uh, I'm doing really well and I kind of dominate my market and I'm not sure the market's going to be a $10 billion market someday or $5 billion market someday, venture capital may not be the best choice, or at least I'd be real careful about it. I'd be careful who you take it from and who you work with on it. That's something we struggled with over the years because we, you know, I'm, I'm from the Bay Area. That's where I got connected with you. Yeah. Know, 10 years ago. By the way, how are, how are you? How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. I'm uh, rocket fuels working. It's working as a business. <laughs> business is booming. Yeah. Some of the rockets even clear the, the atmosphere. Some of them blow up on the launch pad. Some of them blow up before they get to outer space. Some of them make it. That's something we struggled with. And, you know, I'm from Silicon Valley, like Andrew Chen, who I'm staying with here, like, you know, he's, he's the only advisor to the company officially. And he's like, if you're not a billion, you're nothing, you know? And it's like, Okay. And then, you know, there's also the balance of, you know, we, what's sustainability, right? Right. And that's, you know, I think we, we have these debates internally. And I look at it like there's no, for the most part, most people in this world should never raise venture capital. Like I think of it as a very, very specific use case, you know, just like most people shouldn't put rocket fuel in their vehicles. My Miata needs rocket fuel. Yeah. Like if you put rocket fuel in your Miata, it's not going to go well, right? It's not going to end well. And I'm like, hey, that doesn't mean that your Miata sucks. It just means like, go to the gas station selling fuel for your Miata. So uh, that's kind of how I look at it. I like to say to people, look, I'm a, I provide money for a very particular situation. And like, I probably don't deserve credit when it works. I probably don't deserve the blame when it doesn't work. But I'm clear about what I'm in it for. And I'm clear about what my role is. And it's like, you know, if you want rocket fuel, I'm your guy. If you're not sure, I'm probably not your guy. You've always been the awesome to me. You've always been like respectful and like very courteous. And like, we actually tried to race for AppSumo early on. And I remember it was like Ben Ling and a few of these other guys were just really rude, like really like discouraging. And I'm like, I'm trying to create something here. I get it. Like you're an investor, so you want to return, but it's it just, they can, you can reject nicely. And you know, you can reject in a way that doesn't dishonor what the person's building, right? Like Sam Walton didn't raise venture capital either, but he did pretty well. Talking about MailChimp. I mean, there's been some pretty, yeah, pretty yeah, cool Yeah, I hear you. So three things I was kind of curious to, to learn more from you, especially with all your experiences, is how do companies scale, right? So we've hit this kind of point where it's like, and nine figures is like, you know, this is a new terrain. This is like unreal for us. And so, you know, we're debating how much do we find these people that have already, you know, built Slack and built these, you know, mighty networks. And, you know, these companies now that are pretty sizable, um, you know, looking at companies you've invested in. So I'm curious your your take on how companies scale to these next levels, like to the billion dollar public company levels? For the most part, I mean, every company is its own snowflake, right? So it's dangerous to give generic advice, but like that there are some framing questions that I think are useful. So so I like to think of a company that's starting to scale as um, they're trying to create a growth machine. So like, I'll give you an example. I used to be involved with Okta, which is a SaaS company that does identity management. And we got to a million dollars of ARR. And I asked the founders, 
do we want to be a someday top quartile SaaS public company? Yes or no? And I said, look, I'm not judging. It's your company. But like, is that something we're at a million dollars ARR? Is that something we aspire to? Yes or no? They said, of course. And I was like, okay, are you sure about that? And they were like, totally sure. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, let's look at some data here of what is true about top quartile public SaaS companies when they're at your stage of development. What we've observed is that if you want to be such a company, you'd like to go from a million to 10 million in ARR in less than 18 months, consuming less than $9 million. And I can show you these companies did that and these did not, and they're top quartile. These aren't. These are public. These aren't. So, okay, let's go back to the first question. Do we still believe we want to be a top quartile SaaS company? It's public. They're like, yeah, still, we still believe it. So then it's like, all right, what would we need to do to guarantee that would happen? So it's like, okay, we have, I call it the uh, value creation agenda, and it involves the growth multiple, the time frame, and the amount of capital consumed. And I'm like, because like a lot of companies, they just, they just make a plan for what it is. And then they say, we want to make the plan. And I'm sort of like, look, if we want to be a top quartile SaaS company, there's stuff that's bigger than we are that we need to know about. And we need to understand that if we're going to try to be one of those companies, the industry is going to have certain expectations about how fast we grow. But not only that, how much capital consumed to grow that fast. And so it ought to be grounded in the realities of the market that we're in and the dynamics at play and how value gets created. So that's why I call it a value agenda. And then what I do from that is I work backwards and I say, okay, every company then has a growth machine. A growth machine has growth gears. And so like in the Octus case, one gear was the product gear. And the product gear is like lifetime value of the customer, customer acquisition costs, LTV over CAC, CAC payback, timeframes, that kind of stuff. You know, product unit economics, if you will. But there's another growth gear, which is uh, marketing. Marketing's job is not to just run marketing programs. It's to think like an entrepreneur. You have a budget and you're trying to create qualified leads for sales. And we need to create those qualified leads at a faster growth rate than our sales growth rate. Because if we don't, if we fail at that, we'll starve sales of leads. We won't make the number. And, you know, of the marketing growth gears, you've got outbound programs and inbound programs. And what we want is our marketing person to not think like a programs person. We want them to think like an entrepreneur who has a budget from which they try experiments to generate these qualified leads at a certain rate. And then sales, you have um, things like what's the quota of a rep? What's on target earnings? How long does it take for them to ramp? What percent of them ramp effectively? All that stuff. And then customer success is like, okay, you know, how do I go beyond glorified tech support? How do I, how do I have an impact on upsell? And how do I have an impact on retention? Because SaaS is all about subscriptions and, you know, increasing your revenue per customer. And so what all of those gears should do is harmonize to produce the output of that value agenda, right? So like all of those gears ought to produce things that if they were true, the value agenda would be achieved. And all of those gears should have a process that alerts us immediately if we're off track. Because if sales is slightly off track, it's kind of like an airplane, you got to be instrument trained. If it's not going your way, you want to address it really fast rather than go into a flat spin and be out of control, which is what happens in a lot of these companies. The first mistake that founders make often is they don't have a value creation agenda that's that's grounded in 
how they want to create value as a business. The second mistake they make is to not define their growth gears, which we just talked about. The third mistake they make is they don't delegate the ownership of those gears. They say, hey, I want to learn how to sell it before I have sales leadership. I want to learn how to market before I have marketing leadership. Execution can be hired. Vision can't be hired. And so you want to have a directly responsible individual who's not a founder for each of those gears. And they need to know what the fuck they're doing. It's like on-the-job training doesn't work for that, right? It's like they've got to know what they're doing. And so you want to choose the right people for each of those gears. And you want to, if the quota for a sales guy is a certain amount and how much they sell, you want a sales leader who knows how to sell that type of product, that type of price. You don't, because the sales guy will tend to just bring in people like he did in the last job. They'll just run the playbook that they know how to run. So you want to kind of know the playbook that you want to run a priori before you staff it up. The thing I really liked your insight, I like the hire for error for execution, not for vision. One, I like the benchmarking. You're like, hey, if you want to go Formula One speed, here's what it takes to be Formula One speed. And then putting the people in place that can help execute that. I guess one thing that we've been discussing internally is, you know, we have a lot of, you know, very strong people in the company with these like, you know, hyper growth businesses. How many of them are like in homegrown versus like externally brought in? Oh, that's interesting. Huh. So what do you mean by that? You have, with your business, you have employees of the company that have businesses within your business or you have- No, no, no. I'm saying we have teammates that have been with the company for a long time that have, you know, learned a lot of really good skills, but do we then go and try to find the woman who was already the VP of marketing at, you know, Lyft or let's just say, you know, Amazon or something like that to come do it? Or do we take the person internally who's uh, been working up? I think that's just something we struggle with. We're like, why don't we, we talk like hire, been there, done that people. Okay, so I've got some ideas on this one, Noah. I would so, love to hear about. Uh, so here's another thing that I've learned is when a startup goes from being a startup to a company, you start to have multiple value creation initiatives under one roof. I used to have this happen early in my career as a VC. We'd have our first product as successful. And then we say, now it's time to do our second product. And we would make the mistake of saying, okay, we want the second product to be 30% of our business within 12 months or 18 months or whatever. And now I realize, no, that's not what we should do. The second product has to complete zero to one before it goes to one to X. Like there's no shortcutting it because you have to earn the muscle memory and scar tissue of value hacking and product market fit. And it's just like there's earned marketing, there's earned wisdom about product market fit and where the fit is, where it's not. And so I'm like, you're far better off finding a set of people who are entrepreneurial in their outlook and act like a VC inside of your company and give them a seed round to go achieve zero to one. And what you want is a culture where those people have the same kind of prestige in the organization as the guy that runs the big part of the organization. And founders make this mistake too. They're they're like, well, it makes me look weak if I don't have a lot of direct reports. But I'm like, no, it doesn't because the zero to one skill is the harder to replicate skill. The one to X skill can be hired. You kind of want to create a culture where the person that has the biggest budget, the biggest team, and the biggest org chart, the people who have zero to one skills don't feel slighted by that. That you're like, hey, look, I need you for something even more valuable than that. I need you for this new thing over here. And so a lot of the times I find that the people who you like in the company, but they're not the professional done it before. Sometimes you might discover that they're good at like helping you do the new initiatives and that they may actually enjoy that job more, be more effective at it. But so like when I think about like a a company, 
it's a bundle of growth initiatives at all times, right? There's some zero to one stuff going on, one to X stuff going on, profitable growth stuff going on, cash cow, profitable decline stuff going on. And as the company gets bigger, the job of the CEO in some ways is to be asset allocator in chief. And you're allocating assets in terms of dollars and people, right, to these different initiatives. Uh, One last thing, and then let's talk about your podcast. I was curious what investments and what in your, you know, post motive in your investing career have you been most proud of? Okta, I'd say, because it took them a long time to get product market fit and they've just done so well. And Todd's just been an amazing CEO, went the distance and, you know, I have a lot of fond memories of that one. You know, I went to, they invited me to go to Wall Street when they went public and be, help them ring the bell and stuff. Chegg was one that I was proud of in the early days because um, we did this scary pivot to textbook rentals and we ran out of money. And I wrote one last $250,000 check for us to try the textbook rental experiment. And so that's one where just Osman Rashid and I were just like totally in the trenches, like facing impossible together. So that one was fun. Like if you ever listened to our podcast, the episode with him captures a lot of the energy of it because he's like, oh, it's like crazy. Twitter was a fun one, but it was more like it was the first one I'd been involved with that just really blew up and just achieved escape velocity and became bigger than I ever imagined it could be. But I feel uh, negative about it in the sense that I don't think I added as much value as I could have. I think that I, uh, at the time, I was kind of on this mission to prove I was a good stock picker because everybody thought I was an operator. And I realized I could have helped their culture more and I could have helped them. Some of the problems they face now about who gets to be on the platform, who doesn't, could have been headed off at the past. And I, I wasn't as helpful as I could have been at that. Bill Campbell really gave me shit about that back in the day. I have mixed feelings about that one. A lot of the fun of it has been not just being proud of the companies, but just like the founders like have ended up being, you know, go to a lot of weddings and, you know, kind of part of why I studied all this, how value creation happens is I'd see companies fail. And when you're in it this early, they don't, it doesn't feel just like business. They're kind of your peeps. And so you kind of feel like you owe it to them to help them navigate where they are because there's so much noise all around them. So I'd say that uh, a lot of the things I've had the most fun with have been companies that weren't necessarily the biggest outcomes, but where it was just, it was just fun to go to war with these people and just, you know, I like to invest in people I would enjoy getting in trouble with because it happens every time. That's a big deal to me. It's like when we're in trouble, which we will be, how's that going to feel? Am I going to be like, fuck, what am I doing with these people? Or am I going to be like, all right, it's go time. We got this. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's interesting. I think what's fascinating is what we're most proud of. Because a lot of times, like the, I'm doing this bike across America. I have basically all day to think, and which is amazing. It's a blessing. And it's just like, wow, we're really proud of the things that are really hard. And that it's not easy. And it's not necessarily how much money. We, oh, I made the most money here. But am I proud of it? Yeah, fine. But it's like the stuff that like the Chegg thing or like, shit, I got to go get this working. Oh, yeah. And there'd be times where, uh, you know, like he couldn't get a loan. So he had like a... Uh, 20 Amex cards that he was using to buy textbooks. And he had to keep them with him at all times because they were always trying to cancel his account for fraud. And so then he gave credit cards to all of his employees and they would round robin buying the books so that they you know could do transactions not too quickly. It was like great. So he ended up running up like three and a half million dollars of credit card bills on his Amex. You know, and it's like if Amex won't give him, if he can't get credit to buy textbooks, he's out of business 
no matter what the demand is for the textbooks. And so it was fucking wild. Then, you know, we didn't have a warehouse. And so when somebody would rent a textbook, we'd ship it from Amazon. And they'd say, hey, what's up with this? I thought I'm renting a textbook. And we'd be like, oh, it's just a clerical error in the supply chain. You know, can you please ship it back to Chegg? So then a conference room's filling up with textbooks and we're running out of room in the conference room. We're like, oh, shit. So it was just like that one was wild. And, you know, it's funny when you look back, it's like those experiences are the ones you remember more fondly, even than how much money you made. Yeah. Amazing story. It's funny because we we only see the dish. We don't see the kitchen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about your podcast. I guess, how have you been trying to grow it? And then I have some I have two specific suggestions that I think will significantly improve it. Okay. Well, so I wish I could give myself credit for how I'm trying to grow it. So like right now, I don't really have time to do a podcast. And so I did it sort of as a labor of love. I just thought there were lessons I was learning along the way that I thought were sort of counterintuitive. And a lot of the podcasts on startups were like Reed Hoffman, Masters of Scale, which I like. But the problem is, if you're an entrepreneur, Brian Chesky might as well live on Pluto as far as you're concerned, you know, right? Like understanding how he's scaling Airbnb is completely irrelevant when you don't even know who your product and your customer are. And so I was like, okay, I want to do pre-scale was the original idea. And then I was like, well, that's a lame name and it's too derivative. So then it was kind of this idea of starting greatness. So it's purely zero to one, super ambitious. And so like the problem I run into is like, I don't have time to really promote it. Like I'm not doing growth hacking in a traditional way. Or I'm, I'm, I'm like, I just put the episodes out there for what it is. I don't game the reviews. I don't do any gimmicks or any techniques to kind of draw traffic, nothing. I mean, I've been surprised actually at how good the reviews have been relative to just the effort. But it's just like, I just kind of put it out there and I just hope people like it. That's it. Right. And, uh, the team that I work with on, it's like, dude, you got to promote this more. We could be doing cool stuff on YouTube. We could, you know, get snippets out there better, social media, all this. I'm like, I'm like, okay, like, if you got some ideas, let me know. But like, somebody like you would be able to help me way more, I think, than than folks. Like yeah, that. I mean, I've, I've done content creation and promotion on this stuff for, for quite a while. Do you have anyone to assist you? Yeah, I use a PR. It's actually a PR agency called Outcast. But what they really do is they edit it. So like I'll do an hour and a half interview with somebody and they'll edit it down to like 45 minutes. And then I'll do what I call a lesson of greatness, which is a summary. So like with Mark Andreessen, I had the interview and it was about what was Netscape like when it was about to blow up when you're doing Mosaic, right? So I didn't ask him about softwares eating the world or any of that stuff. Yeah, it was the pre-stage. Yeah, so the two things I think would dramatically increase your downloads with honestly not a lot of work. Yeah. Number one thing that's obvious to me is like you need to start doing email. Okay. I'm not trying to get you to do more work even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I recommend is like when I go to floodgate.com or if I click greatness.floodgate.com, there's no place where you need to add my email. And you have to think about in terms of the the funnel, the audience isn't going to go to floodgate and then go and try to listen to a podcast or go to your podcast and listen right then. Right. It's going to be delayed. So what I would recommend is have Outcast set up your newsletter so that when they come to floodgate.com, it goes in your newsletter. Same with uh, the greatness of floodgate. It collects an email. And then just set up an autoresponder or set up an email that like whenever you launch an episode, just emails like, hey, here's my episode. Go click like that'll dramatically probably double maybe I don't know about triple, but de- the amount of people that are listening. Interesting. So if you look at Anderson Horowitz, if you look at first round, if you look at a lot of top firms, they almost it's funny how much now they like prioritize getting email addresses. Yeah, that'd be really interesting, like because we have a new website 
we just came up with a new website because we're moving into a new building. I'm like, okay, if we're going to ever do a brand refresh, now's the time. So came up with a new version of the logo and website. Yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts. I mean, I would even just say on your floodgate.com on the top, it should just be like an, either put a link to the newsletter or put a link. I put a link to the newsletter there or to the podcast. That makes it a little bit, I guess the, I'd probably do the newsletter to make it easier to people. I'll start digesting it. Okay. And then emailing out whenever you have a new episode. Because a lot of people, I have to go to the podcast and check all that stuff. You have more control over the communication. The second thing, does Outcast have like a target KPI at all around how many shows you're coming on? A little bit, uh, but it's it's sort of like I've told them. It's funny because Outcast, if anything, they're pushing me. They're like, we could get awards for this show. Like, like we're going to be doing all this cool stuff. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like guys, like my job is to find a company that's going to create a billion dollars of exit profit for Vlogates partners, right? That's my job. So like, if I'm going to do this, I can do one new episode every two weeks. I think that's good. But I'm saying the number one way I've ever seen to grow a podcast, I'm basically specializing in YouTube yeah. lately, but when I've, I have a podcast and when I've specialized in growing the podcast, the number one only way to grow it significantly is be on other people's shows. So I would put them on task to be like, I want to be on Masters of Scale. My show is relatively sized in the business category. So like, yeah. in which you know, I'll promote your show and it'll drive a good amount of subscribers, but have them like, hey, I want two big shows a month. And that's actually what'll get you billion dollar exits because they're going to hear Mike Maples. So you'll get deals. Plus it'll grow your show the most significantly. So I would just task them with like a certain KPI on that each month. How do you get people to sign up for your newsletter from a podcast? From the podcast is tough. That medium exchange is tough. Yeah. So I don't, I don't try to do it that way. Okay. You can, you can put it in the show notes. So like in the show notes and all this stuff, you can have a link that goes to it. But I mean, people kind of are on their phone. You could do it in the intro too. Like, Hey guys, like we have a weekly newsletter. Honestly, the CTAs on that stuff has been pretty abysmal. Yeah. Yeah. It can work, but it's not as effective as like, I'm reading a newsletter, go do someone else's newsletter. But like a great example of a podcast you should be on. Have you been on like my first million? No. Dude, that's like a, one of the biggest business podcasts today. Uh, it's run by The Hustle. Like you get on that, you tell your story, you talk about the companies, all, you know, your stuff is amazing. And those guys are, you know, drive you thousands, if not tens of thousands of new subscribers with basically and new potential, you know, uh, people to invest in. Well, and that resonates, right? Like Tim Ferriss helped me out when I launched this thing. And it's, you know, it drove a lot. You know, he put me on his show and said, hey, Mike's going to do this new podcast. Here's the first episode. And it was like, you know, thanks, Tim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll send you a flower basket. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I would try to figure out who is in your, I mean, you have an amazing network. I think it's also, you know, it's good for you, good for them. Like you have interesting content. Yeah. I can put you in touch with the My First Million guys. I think that'd be worth your time. Plus they just sold their company to HubSpot. Yeah, I'd love to talk to them. Yeah. So quick question for you too then. Uh, do you think one possibility is um, for the, the sub stack that I have to be for the podcast, but the other possibility is for starting greatness newsletter to just be Floodgates newsletter. I would keep it simple and just have everything under one. Yeah. Personally. Because like when I think about it, like, I don't think like whenever I get like the foundation capital newsletter, I'm like, who gives a shit about a VC firm's newsletter? Like, oh, wow. Foundation capital newsletter. I can't wait to read it. So like, I'm like, okay, the newsletter ought to be about starting greatness, right? It ought to be the go-to source for, hey, I'm an ambitious founder. I want to be awesome. Here's the info. And it could be stuff from the podcast, but it could be anything that's on brand for that, you know, anything that's uh, consistent with that. I think that's a, the right approach. I mean, if you think about Andrew, I mean, Andrew's now a GP at A16Z and a lot of it is because of his blog. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. He's smart as shit and he's been a great investor and he's, you know, all these things. But, and so I think the more that you create that relationship with people and build your brand up, 
like the inbound. I mean, you know, all this stuff, but I, I love that. I think it's like on the top of your website, I'm on Floodgate right here. It should be like starting greatness. And I click it and it's like, give me your email. And like, you know, let me start sending you interesting content around that. Interesting. Okay. I guess the other one could be like, even at the bottom, right? Keep in touch. Yeah. I mean, it's like you send them to your Twitter and LinkedIn, which is good. I, I've always been a fan of email because it's the only way to scale communication. Uh, I agree. hundred percent. We're about to do a new website for the podcast. Maybe I should think of it as more of a blog. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would think of the SEO traffic, like how much you're getting from Google, but it's ultimately for you building a brand and awareness. And then I'd say being able to capture that audience. Like you're going to get the attention, like you're interviewing interesting people. They're going to come, but they're going to come see it and be like, okay, bye-bye. Versus like, hey, let me get a weekly update. It could be a Substack or it could be just a newsletter uh, all integrated. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, when people tell you to do the clips thing, mm-hmm. generally on YouTube and that, it's a waste of time. Okay. It's not going to really drive subs unless you're focused on growing your YouTube channel, which means like you have professional cameras and like you have it make it look super polished and stuff like that. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be pretty yeah, marginal. If you're going to be like Gary Tan, I guess it could work, but yeah. You could do that just as well, but then I would focus on doing YouTube and growing that and then you have a byproduct, which is your pot. That's the way I do it. So I focus on YouTube and then I take that content and I kind of poop out a podcast. Oh, interesting. Okay. So this is more, I was really excited to talk to you. I haven't talked to you in like years. So yeah. I was like, I don't know if it'll go on, it'll go on the podcast for sure, but it, it doesn't actually make great YouTube content. Okay, cool. Well, I'd love to, you know, any ideas that you have. I think two things, grow the, get week, start your weekly newsletter and have the outcast wherever write a weekly newsletter that includes your show yep. and then have them a KPI that gets you on shows once, twice a month. Okay. But then it, like, if you look at Andrew Chen's blog, it's because I talked to him about this back in the day. He's very much like you. He's like, you got to get people's email. What was interesting about that is if you look at his site, his site is not, it's not super fancy. You know, I don't know what his latest one looks like. No, I don't think he's updated his site in a while. Oh, he hasn't. Okay. But it used to be just like, you know, there's long form essays about growth. Every page, it was like, hey, give me your email. But his whole thing was you got to get their email. Yeah. I mean, that's why I care about it. I mean, that's how we built our company. Like, if you look at it, just andrewchen.com. It's like, get my newsletter. It's like the first thing, right? And it's like your email address, sign up, quote, essays. Like, it's not a fancy site. It's almost intentionally not. Yeah, I think what's interesting is go to A16Z, and I think I'll prove my point to you here. Yeah. It's actually fascinating how they're building their brand around it. But if you go to A16Z, like... Look at the top of the... Actually, about the future of technology. I like this. Yep. <laughs> Get an email. Give me their email address. So what do you think? Should I just say passionate about starting greatness? I mean, I like your stuff. Actually, I love your message. I was looking... I was actually inspired. Like, your first true believers. And then I saw something else I liked. It was like, yeah, your, uh, your first true believers. And that was cool, man. Okay. I would be mindful about how much new work are you trying to create versus like, how do I stay top of mind relevancy and like, you know, pull people in. They're like, oh, I want investing. Like, for years now, I've been hearing Mike's stuff. Yeah. So I try to figure out how do you set that up without having to add a lot of extra work to what you're already doing. So either that's Outcast or someone internally. But it might be interesting to consider a full-time hire on uh, you know, internal slash external marketing. Yeah. And I'm also, I've been working on this book that I'm going to probably get out next year that I think people are going to like, which is um, how do you come up with breakthrough ideas? You know, like uh, people tend to talk about customer development but that's, they start with the idea for what it is and then how do you get product market fit. And my book is going to be more about like, how do you come up with breakthroughs? Like, and I like to say that if customer developments get out of the building, insight development is get out of the present. How do you follow inflections to different futures and then work backwards to come up with these breakthrough ideas? And so just for the heck of it, 
I experimented with some of it and I would send an email blast to a bunch of people and say, hey, I think you might build a breakthrough someday. I'm doing this AMA. And I've probably done about 10 of them or so. And on average, we probably get about 20 or 30 people. And those have worked pretty well. And you start to get a feel for what's going to land and what's not going to land. And so what I could do, like something about like I, I um passionate about the future of technology, what would be the hook that would cause people to sign up with their email on Floodgate site, you know, without ruining sort of the aesthetics of the current site? I definitely get that. I think it's more about, is this important to you? Like, is this actually driving the results that you're looking to accomplish, like either for your book sales or your podcast or deal flow? I would worry less what you title it, but just, you know, is this actually accomplishing what you want? And then how to make it so you can streamline that process to make it less effort? On your I side? think so. I, I think I'm seeing some deals because of it. Where it's really helped us is in a couple of areas. You've probably experienced this too. Like when I meet these founders, it's like they feel like they know me. It's very advantageous in a competitive deal. Look, Andrew. I mean, Andrew's one of my best friends. I mean, a lot of his deals now, because people know his blog and people know his content. Totally. A lot of it is like you're already doing Twitter stuff. You can always just take the content you're already doing and then that's your kind of like weekly thing. Yeah. And, you know, like these lessons of greatness things, uh, they could easily be a blog post. You know, like I have one called Living in the Future. Or I could have the transcript interview with Mark and the lesson of greatness. It just becomes like a blog almost. I like the email stuff, especially for books, because it's like with Twitter, you get 1% or less interactions. Right. So it's like, hey, I want people to buy my book. I want people to check out this thing. I want people to like learn something new. It's like kind of have control over that information. All right. Well, I'll definitely think about this. And I'd love to get your views on. So we are going to come up with a website for starting greatness because it's, uh, I mean, we've got one now, but it kind of sucks. It's just what Simplecast has. That's a good start. I mean, that you're just getting going. I think it's just like, you know, fitting this into like, how does it help? One, if it's fun. I, lo I love that you said that. And then how does it fit into like, you know, over their overall business strategy of like deal flow and, you know, connecting with interesting people? Yeah. And it's like, you know, there's a couple of upsides that have come from it. One is it forces you to clarify your own thinking when you get ready for these interviews or when you have the following episodes. But the other thing that's interesting is, okay, now I know Julia Hartz has a ticketing platform for like a bajillion creators doing events. I'm like, hey, you know, Julia, should we co-invest in creator economy companies? And can you tell me what you're seeing on Eventbrite? Or like knowing Kevin Systrom for certain situations, it turns out that if you're buddies with those people, there's some pretty big second order effects you can get out of it, which I didn't see coming. So, you know, it's, it's powerful if you're seeing some guy who's doing a consumery thing, it's like, if I was going to invest, would you be interested in talking to Kevin Sistro about investing too? You know, it's kind of helps get ball control, if you will. hundred percent. I think in a world, especially for you, where like the, there's a lot of cash out there. It's like, what's the value add, which it sounds like, you know, for Okta, Chegg and I, you know, what you have available, this stuff is the differentiator. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. No, no, it is. It is. So I'll get you the one pager and then I'll put you in touch with the guys from the hustle. I think that would be, uh, it'd be great for you. Okay. Hey, thanks, Noah. It's great talking to you. Good seeing you, boss. Good talk to you. Thanks, man. Okay. Well, that is right. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. Make sure you go check out Mike's podcast called The Starting Greatness Podcast. Next, text your friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go on a spaceship together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. Also, remember to go join my email list. That's sendfox.com slash Noah. I put out exclusive stuff for my email subscribers. And go sign up for AppSumo.com. How do you not know AppSumo.com? How do you say it? AppSumo.com. Final couple shout outs to my amazing team. Thank you, Jason at PodcastTech.com for doing all the editing. Mitchell, Jeremy, Hubert, Jonathan, Sasa, and Jen from the Dork Team. Damn, there's a lot of y'all sexy people. And finally, shout out to the video team at AppSumo. 
Jade, Jordan, Lindsay, Bronte, and JR. Thank you for the online business ideas for 2021, which has gotten over 150,000 views. That's awesome. Have a Los Angeles day. What's your favorite day of the week?